Upon the eve of battle, it is all but obligatory for leaders to address their soldiers, assuring them that not only will they defeat the enemy, but with their victory, a better world will be delivered. For centuries, such addresses relied on one thing, the power of words. In cinema, you need a bit more. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbours and say, Tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, These wounds I had on Crispin's day. When watching Laurence Olivier's 1944 adaptation of William Shakespeare's Henry V, take note how Olivier not only measured the speech, but also choreographed the scene. He begins in full shot, standing between a horse and cart. As he begins to walk, cinematographers Jack Hildyard and Robert Krasker gradually pull back to include Henry's growing forces. He climbs onto a cart and the camera cranes up to reflect his troops' rising spirits. It's all done in one single movement. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so base. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap while Zenny speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. When watching Kenneth Branagh's 1989 adaptation, notice how, rather than pulling away from Henry, Branagh and his cinematographer, Kenneth Macmillan, decided to begin on a wide shot before pushing in. That move was punctuated by editor Michael Bradsell, who cut the faces of the men listening to Henry's words, all while Patrick Dole's score roused their faith in the young king. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now are bed shall think themselves accursed they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that thought with us upon St. Crispin's Day! But a leader's speech is not only to galvanise the soldiers' morale, it is to bring into critical focus the reason to fight. Released in 1998, Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan initially appears to possess such critical clarity that it does not need any such speech. After a brief prologue in a Normandy cemetery, he cuts straight to the D-Day invasion. Clear the ramp! 30 seconds! Got me with you! Horse right stick, starboard side stick! Move fast and clear those murder holes! Want to see plenty of beef between men. Five men? To shoot the opportunity. One man's a waste of ammo. Stand out of your weapons. Keep those actions clear. We'll see you on the beach. Spielberg's film covers the same monumental campaign featured in several earlier films. Breakthrough from 1950, directed by Lewis Zeiler. From 1962, The Longest Day, produced by Richard Sanek. 
Eight years later, Franklin Schaffner's Oscar-winning pattern. And a decade after that, Sam Fuller's The Big Red One, which was based on Fuller's own experience when he served with the 1st Infantry Division in North Africa, Sicily and France. Regiment figures as a railway gun that's been chopping them up. Forward observers in a monastery right here. Well, why the hell don't we shell it? Yeah, just throw a couple bombs on it. There's an underground fighter living in that monastery. It's a woman. She's a killer. Her name is Walloon. She has a squad plan for a silent wipeout of the Krauts without firing a shot and not killing one civilian. A woman in a monastery? Well, it's really not a monastery, and it's a asylum for retards and insane people. I say division should bomb it. Killing insane people is not good for public relations. Killing sane people's okay. That's right. But while those films chart the overall campaign, Spielberg's film focuses on a much smaller map. Rather than defeating fascism and liberating Europe, it concentrates on a squad of men ordered to locate and bring home the only surviving son of Mrs. Margaret Ryan. The boy's alive. We are going to send somebody to find him. And we are going to get him the hell out of there. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Understandably, then, Saving Private Ryan has no such rousing speech, no proclamation of freedom, democracy, and the overthrow of tyranny. Consequently, as Captain John Miller, played by Tom Hanks, leads his squad behind enemy lines, whatever clarity there may be in his orders, the mission soon gives way to ambiguity. Which may be the reason why Robert Rodat's screenplay, with uncredited apologies from Scott Frank and Frank Darabont, leaves its most important speech until very near the end. By that stage, the mission has long since become a point of heated contention, a task that has not only split the squad, but resulted in the deaths of two of their members. Which means that when the speech that brings everything into critical focus is finally delivered, it not only starts with profound confusion, but comes from a surprising source. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense, sir. Why? Why me? Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me. Is that what they're supposed to tell your mother? When they send her another folded American flag? Tell her that when you found me, I was here, and I was with the only brothers that I have left. And there's no way I was going to desert them. I think she'll understand that. There's no way I'm leaving this bridge. Many people have doubted the likelihood of Ryan's response, that his reaction is pure hokum, the stuff of a director who needs that to happen in order for him to deliver his second grand battle. However, copious data from veterans in numerous wars has shown that in such moments, soldiers do not fight for their god, their country or their flag, or even the belief of freedom and democracy and the hope of a better world. They fight for the few, the courageous, tormented, desperate few beside them. So Ryan's response is perfectly plausible. Hearing Ryan speak with such passion and clarity, Captain Miller looks down to the ground and our view of his eyes is suddenly obscured by the brim of his helmet. The moment calls to mind the climax of William A. Wellman's 1943 Western, The Oxbow Incident. There, Gil Carter, played by Henry Fonda, reads a letter written by a man to his wife moments before he was unjustly hanged, or to be more honest, lynched. My dear wife, Mr. Davies will tell you what's happening here tonight. 
He's a good man and has done everything he can for me. I suppose there's some other good men here, too, only they don't seem to realize what they're doing. They're the ones I feel sorry for. Because it'll be over for me in a little while, but they'll have to go on remembering for the rest of their lives. Man just naturally can't take the law into his own hands and hang people without hurting everybody in the world. Because then he's just not breaking one law, but all laws. Law's a lot more than words you put in a book. Or judges or lawyers or sheriffs you hire to carry it out. It's everything people ever have found out about justice and what's right and wrong. It's the very conscience of humanity. Together with the cinematographer Arthur C. Miller, Wellman framed the scene so that as Gill reads the letter, our view of his eyes is blocked by the brim of the hat worn by his friend, Art Croft, played by Harry Morgan. Wellman's intention was to visualise the phrase Justice is blind. Spielberg does the same thing to convey the moment Miller finally admits to the moral quandary of the mission. Until now, he has been blindly following his orders, but with the brim of his helmet obscuring his eyes, it is as if Miller himself cannot see the answer. And if that is the case, it serves as a culmination of Miller's gradually growing myopia. Sergeant, we have crossed some strange boundary here. The world has taken a turn for the surreal. Clearly, but the question still stands. I don't know. What do you think? You don't want to know what I think. Let us go back to the D-Day landing. Having taken the beachhead, Miller looks on as a pair of German soldiers lay down their weapons to surrender. But rather than taking them captive, two GIs shoot them in cold blood. Editor Michael Kahn, who won his third Oscar here, cuts straight to Miller. He neither arrests nor reprimands the men. Instead, he just looks on. Then, later, the mission brings a squad across a crash site where 22 American servicemen were killed because the plane in which they were travelling was too heavy. The undercarriage had been reinforced to protect the life of a Brigadier General. Still looking for Ryan, Miller and his squad sift through the dog tags of those soldiers killed, making a sport of who would be first to find Ryan's name. Later still, the squad come upon a Nazi bunker. They want to go around, but Miller insists on an ambush. The diversion results in the death of their paramedic, Erwin Wade, played by Giovanni Ribisi. Outraged at the loss of their brother, the squad then begin beating up the sole surviving Nazi. Played by Georg Stadler, he is listed in the credits as Steamboat Willie. Director of photography Janusz Kaminski, who earned his second Oscar here, places the camera well back from the beating, showing the violence in an extremely long shot. Some people have misunderstood the motivation for this, arguing that Spielberg shied away from showing the bloody details. Hardly plausible given the gore that's preceded and will follow. No, to show the beating in close-up would have been to endorse it. Instead, by maintaining a distance, Spielberg puts it in a wider frame. And in that context, Miller again does nothing. Instead, it falls to Corporal Upham, played by Jeremy Davis, to plead for reason. Sir, sir, are you going to let them kill him? This is not right. Sir. You can help me with the bodies. What is happening? That is not to suggest that Upham is the squad's moral conscience. In fact, he seems to have a wider, metaphorical purpose than that. For the final battle at Ramel, Upham is appointed to weapons detail, 
But when Private Mellish, played by Adam Goldberg, gets into hand-to-hand -hand combat against a Waffen-SS soldier, just when Upham is needed most, he freezes. The corporal, who is writing a book about the bonds that form between soldiers during war, fails to come to his brother's aid. Don't forget, Mellish is a sole Jewish member of the squad. So, could Upham's failure represent the collective failure to recognise the threat of Nazism in the 1930s? Either way, when the battle is won and Upham is holding a group of soldiers at gunpoint, he orders them to lay down their weapons. They obey, but then one of them is revealed to be Steamboat Willie, the very soldier Upham saved earlier on. But instead of continued clemency, Upham shoots him in cold blood. Crucially, Spielberg does not give us a reverse shot of the dead man because to do so would have condoned Upham's action. Instead, our eyes stay on Upham, and for a split second, Spielberg has him look directly into the lens, and then just as quickly, he looks away. In this film, looking is not just a physical act, it is also a moral one. All of which is to say that Saving Private Ryan is a lot more morally complex than people would give Spielberg credit for. Upham, how do you say it's okay? I Come can't. You remind me of my niece, sir. Kapoizov, get the kid back up there. Captain, the decent thing to do is to at least take you down the road to the next town. We're not here to do the decent thing. We're here to follow fucking orders. Start this goddamn The word decent is uttered four times throughout the film, each time with different intonations: idealistic, dismissive, cynical, and hopeful. And I think overall, the final one is the film's quest. It is a search for decency within the theatre of barbarism. However, that is not to say that Saving Private Ryan is an anti-war picture. François Truffaut argued that there is no such thing. But neither is Saving Private Ryan a gung-ho, jingoistic programmer. There is nothing triumphant or celebratory about it. If anything, the overall tone is elegiac, and proof of that can be found in John Williams's Oscar-nominated score. After the intensity of the opening battle, Williams' music provides a much-needed bam, and the score's mood guides the camera to a soldier lying dead on the beach. On his haversack, we see the name S. Ryan. The story then cuts to the team of secretaries typing letters notifying families of the deaths of their men. And for me, that sequence culminates in the strongest moment in the film, and one of the strongest sequences Spielberg has ever gathered. You might say that with its mission to find one man and bring him safely home to his family, Saving Private Ryan echoes the plot of John Ford's The Searchers, in which case Spielberg reconfigures what is The Searchers' most iconic image, the opening and closing shots looking out through the dory onto the Texan panhandle. Here is Spielberg speaking at the AFI. I try to run a John Ford film one or two before I start every movie. I have to look at The Searchers have to. I'm very sensitive to the way he uses his camera to paint his pictures and the way he frames things and, and the way he stages and blocks his people, often keeping the camera static while the people give you the illusion that there's a lot more kinetic movement occurring when there's not. So, you know, in, in that sense, he was a, he's like a classic painter, you know, and he celebrates the frame, not just, uh, you know, what happens inside of it. When it has learned that the three Ryan brothers have been killed in battle, 
a senior officer and an accompanying chaplain, drive out to Mrs. Ryan's farm. Played by Amanda Boxer, their forlorn mother opens the door and steps out onto the porch, or at least staggers, struggling to keep her balance. She knows precisely why these two men are stepping solemnly from their car. We see her in pitiful silhouette, her hands wavering, her heart puncturing, and finally easing down to a despairing heap. There is no dialogue in this sequence, no words to soothe Mrs. Ryan's anguish, no speech to clarify the ideal for which her sons fought and died. Yet there is no need, because Spielberg is doing what he does best, arranging a set of images to convey profound emotions and persuasive ideas. And here he pays fitting tribute to what has come to be called the greatest generation.